Would you agree with this statement that claims not backed by deeds are worthless? Someone can talk a big talk, but unless they back that up with action, it really means nothing. There's something in all of us that disapproves of the empty boaster. We don't mind people making bold claims, but they have to back them up. This is part of what made, for example, Babe Ruth such a baseball legend. You may have heard of his famous called shot, the 1932 World Series. Well, at bat, he pointed to center field, to the center field bleachers, as if to claim that he was going to hit a home run into center field. And on the very next pitch, he hit a home run right into center field, right where he pointed. That's called putting your money where your mouth is. That's called talking the talk and then walking the walk. We don't like hypocrites, though. And if someone is trying to sell a message, but they secretly live contrary to that message, it really destroys their credibility and it diminishes their cause. This has proven to be a real problem, for example, among some top environmental activists. There are many environmental evangelists. They preach a message of reducing carbon emissions to save the planet, and that's their prerogative. But a lot of them, millionaires especially, they tell the common person, you should ride your bike to work, take the bus, but they're flying around in private jets, the single most wasteful mode of transportation on the planet. You have some like Robert Kennedy Jr., who's a huge environmentalist, supports renewable energy, and that's fine. But he notably opposed the wind turbine project because it would have ruined the view of his house in Cape Cod. And so when you have people essentially say, do as I say, not as I do, it destroys their credibility. It calls them to question the genuineness of their own beliefs, and it diminishes their cause. I trust you get the point, and before you pick on others too much when it comes to this issue, I bring this up because this applies to Christians. You know, by definition, if you're a Christian, you're making certain claims just by holding to the faith. You are claiming that Jesus really is Lord and Savior. You're claiming he is the way, the truth, and the life. You believe in him. You know him. You're claiming you have faith in Christ, that you're saved, and that you've received the transforming power of God. That's just some of what you are claiming by definition by being a Christian. These are your claims. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's fair enough. That's the easy part because anybody can claim such things. Anyone can claim to be a Christian. But do you back them up? Do you offer any proof or evidence that your claims are real. You say you have faith in Jesus, but do you know there's such a thing as a false faith? So how do we know that you're the real thing, that you're the real deal? Well, a large part of the answer comes in works. Your works. How you live your life is the proof of your confession or maybe the lack thereof. You talk the talk, you you make a profession of faith, and that's good. But let's see who lives it out. Let's see who lives and acts like they actually believe Jesus is really the Lord. That's how you identify the true believer who possesses a faith of the saving variety. Because there is a type of faith which cannot save. And nothing exposes such a false faith like not walking the walk. Look, it's a convicting message that we all need to hear, and we're going to hear it this morning from James chapter 2. You can open your Bibles now to James chapter 2. 
I think it's about time we finally got into this passage in James 2 on faith and works. It's been a long time coming. For the past three weeks, really, we've been doing some background studies to prepare us for this landmark passage in James on faith and works. As you turn to James 2, and in the previous passage, he finished by saying this, James 2, 12 and 13. He said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This passage can catch some Christians off guard because it speaks of judgment, of us being judged. And you might think, wait, I thought thought we've passed out of judgment as Christians. We're we're not going to be judged, right? But then what do you make of verses like this? And what do you make of verses like Romans 2.6, which speaks of a coming judgment where God will render to each person according to his deeds? So will Christians be judged or not? Well, for those who are truly in Christ, it's true we have passed out of condemnation. We have indeed passed out of that judgment. But here's another question. Who are those who are truly in Christ? Who are the true believers? And what we find then that in Scripture, there's another type of judgment, which is meant to identify the true and the false. This is a judgment of separation, which Christ himself referenced several times, whereby all those people who claim faith in him, they're not automatically granted entrance into the kingdom. You you see, a, a profession of faith is not enough. They must have a possession of faith. And so a type of judgment is administered to see well, who has real faith, who has saving faith. And this is a judgment of works. What have you done? How have you lived? The standard of this judgment is not the law of Moses. For us in the church, we are no longer under the law of Moses, and we're no longer held accountable to it. We still have a law, though, which governs our actions and to which we will be held accountable. As we've been learning for the past several weeks, this is the law of Christ, the law of liberty, as James references. The law of Christ shows us what God expects of us now. It shows us what true faith in Christ looks like. Works of obedience to this law, the law of Christ, they don't save you. They don't contribute to your salvation, but they sure do display your salvation. Do you possess a real faith? or not. Your works of obedience to this law of Christ will tell. And James himself administers one test back in verse 13 considering or concerning mercy. The law of Christ tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to show mercy to others as our father is merciful to us. So when you have someone who characteristically shows no mercy to others and has no love for others, What is it but merely revealing that they have not really received the transforming mercy, the saving mercy of God? And so you see, these works reveal. They make plain who has a true faith and who does not. And so bouncing off this topic, James next addresses and further clarifies the relationship between faith and works. Faith and works. There were some people in the church who were getting this wrong, 
like way wrong. And then you have Christ himself who says, not a few, but many who, who claim to have faith in him will actually be turned away from the kingdom. That their lack of faith or their false faith will be evidenced by their, their deeds of lawlessness. And so clearly this is a big deal. This is a big issue that you can't afford to get wrong. I trust you don't want to be one of those who lived your whole life thinking you were a Christian. You said, I believe in Jesus. But then you find yourself barred from the kingdom and turned away by Christ himself. I'm going to guess you don't want that to be you. So we should all pay attention to what James has to say here. Let's do that now, starting by reading this passage, the, the text for today, James 2, 14 through 19. And you can listen as I read. James 2, 14. He says next, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And we'll stop there for now. Clearly, James is teaching here on on the fundamental relationship between faith and works. And he does so by building an argument. So we're just going to follow along, follow along his argument here. And we'll start with this. Number one, a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question, starting in verse 14. He begins this new section with actually a pair of rhetorical questions. Look again at verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? So here James begins an imaginary conversation with this someone. It's actually pretty common in ancient writing and rhetoric to kind of create this imaginary debate between yourself and an imaginary opponent. Although we're going to find that this probably this, this someone was not so imaginary, most likely. But James brings up this person, this someone. And this someone says he has faith. This person is a Christian and he's made a claim to have faith. And throughout the whole passage, by the way, the whole thing, the orthodoxy of this someone is never called into question. James never goes after him for wrong doctrine or false belief. This is a person who claims to have, you know, the the faith. He's got all the right doctrine and truth. He seems to believe all the right things, but that's it. The problem is he he only has faith. This someone makes a claim of faith, but he has no works. He manifests no deeds of obedience to God's word. And likely he's not abstaining from various evils. So we have a person who, for all intents and purposes, claims to possess an orthodox faith. But he does not possess any of the corresponding deeds or acts of obedience. And so the question James asks at first rhetorically is, what use is that? What's the advantage of such a faith? Is it any good? He follows up with a second rhetorical question 
the end of verse 18. And he says also, can that faith save him? You know, getting a little more specific, is there any saving advantage to that type of faith? You know, can that faith do what faith is supposed to do? And that's bring someone to salvation. Understand, James is not calling into question the ability of faith alone to save someone. He believes faith alone is what saves. But he's calling into question, can that type of faith save? You know, the type of faith that has no works, can that type of faith actually save someone? That's the question. You know, with all his mention of the law of Christ and the law of liberty here in James, there's a good chance that he's actually correcting a real issue among the Christians to whom he writes. If you remember, his audience was primarily early Jewish Christians. And these Jews would have been saved out of extreme legalism, right? They had grown up, taught, believed that to be saved, you must keep the law of Moses. Not even the Old Testament taught salvation by law keeping, but you know, Jewish legalism by the time of the day of Christ had morphed into this works righteousness religion. So they grew up striving to obey the law, thinking they could earn righteousness by keeping the law of Moses. It's not true. And then for, for these people, somehow, some way, they came to hear of Christ. They came to the gospel of grace, grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. These people came to confess, these Jews came to confess Jesus as their savior. And they embraced the gospel and with it, the freedom that came from the law of Moses, they found liberty. Oh, so we've been wrong our whole lives. Salvation is not by keeping the law. It's by, by God's grace. And they had the sense of liberty. And that's meant to be liberating. Grace through faith alone. But it appears that some had probably swung too far in the opposite direction. That they, they They're reacting so heavily against works and overemphasis on works that they came to Christ, they, they understood liberty from the law, and they understood Christianity to be the opposite, where it's, it's faith and only faith, where now works mean nothing. And they grew up, it's, it's all works, no faith, and now it's just all faith and works are meaningless. We can, we can do whatever we want now. We have faith in Jesus. That's all that matters. Works now are inconsequential, and that is going too far. That is the, the wrong side of things. They've got the essential relationship between faith and works wrong. You know, while it's true, works do not save you. And they don't even contribute to your salvation. But they still play an essential role in the Christian life. And they still have an essential relationship to your faith. And so we need some clarification, though. Like, what's that relationship between faith and works? You know, in verse 14, he's just asking questions. Hasn't given us any answers, just getting this discussion going. But already, these questions should make you, even in your seat right now, pause and, and think. You know, Scripture clearly teaches we're saved by faith apart from works. So do you really have to have works to be saved? Does a person really need them? If salvation is by faith, Can't someone be saved without any works to their name? Is that possible? 
We're going to keep going and find some clarification. Secondly, now a revealing illustration. From a rhetorical question to a revealing illustration. Look at verse 15. He says next, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Remember, James started this section by asking the question, what use is it? What use is that type of faith? And he asks again, what use is that? And the answer should be obvious. It's no use. That type of faith is of no use. It's useless. And it's useless in two ways. First, that type of faith is useless for salvation. We'll see that as we go on later, but that type of faith cannot save. Secondly, though, that type of faith, it's also useful for, for the church. It's, or rather, useless for the church. It's useless for others. That type of faith will not do anyone any good. It's, it's a no good faith, literally. It's of no good. And that's the point James illustrates in these verses. The type of faith that does no good to one's neighbor is no faith at all. And how could such a person really think they're fulfilling the law of Christ anyway. This illustration he gives, it's kind of stunning when you think about it. You have a brother or a sister. So we're talking about a fellow believer in the church. Not even talking about someone who hates God out there in the world. This is someone sitting in the pew next to you. There's a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, but they're down and out. They're going through quite a, a stretch, a rough time. He or she is impoverished. He says, first, they're without clothing. Gumnos is the word from which we get the word gymnasium. And it originally literally meant naked, as the ancient Greeks used to exercise in the nude. But here it likely means just without your outer garment. These people, this person is dressed in rags. Certainly not enough to keep warm. It's like seeing a homeless person in the wintertime. They've got nothing but a raggy t-shirt on. And you know, like, there's no way he's staying warm in that overnight. So this person is, is without clothing. He says they're also in need of daily food. Doesn't mean they're starving to death, but they don't have any food for the day or any means to get it. We don't know anything else here. Did this person just lose their job? Have they been habitually unemployed? Did they lose everything in a fire? We don't know. Nothing else is, is told to us. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter. Right? Does it really matter how they came to be without food or clothing? This is, this is a brother or sister like in the church, sitting next to you without food or clothing. And we're talking real need. We're not talking want. We're not saying they're in want of some tickets to Disneyland or they're in want of Starbucks. This is need, food, clothing, level of need. So we don't really need a reason. That, that's reason enough. We're, we're just going to help them. We're just going to help them, give them food, give them clothing. That, that's a no-brainer. That should be no question, right? Especially this is someone in the church. No question. But not for this person, this someone. Verse 16, instead, this person says to this brother or sister in need, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Go in peace, the shalom, and the common Jewish farewell. This person wishes the peace of God on this person. 
but does nothing about it. He tells the person in need, be warmed and be filled. He wishes that they would get some food and clothes. It's not going to come from him, though. He's not going to do anything about it. And so his are empty words. This is a meaningless benediction. It's been said this person offers warm words, but cold deeds. And so James naturally follows that up and asks, what use is that? What use is that in that type of faith? And the answer should be obvious to you, no use. It is useless. This is kind of like the Christian today who sees a brother or sister in need and says, I'll pray for you. Meanwhile, they are fully equipped to meet their need. Like they have everything they need to meet that need. But wait, like you're waiting for God to snap his fingers and take care of that person's need? And listen, we have a very high view of God's sovereignty at this church, but do you also realize that God sovereignly determines to use means to meet such needs and answer such prayers? So maybe you should be the means that he uses to answer that prayer. What's at stake here? Just the reality of your salvation. No big deal. You see, in Scripture, showing mercy to others, it's so essential to the faith that it can be made a test of your faith, a test of how genuine your faith is. We see that all over, and you can say whatever you want with your mouth. If you habitually fail to show mercy to those in need, if you lack love for others in your heart, it's only revealing you possess a worthless faith. It's a useless faith. And do you think that faith can save you? Keep a finger in James and turn over to 1 John, just a few books to the right here. 1 John chapter 1. And look, we've made these references before. We've gone to 1 John a lot. But we're going to do it again because they're so valuable. And I realize some of you may even be new. Maybe you've never seen some of these verses over in 1 John. But much like James, John, he he lays this issue out so clearly. How are we saved? By faith. But how do you know you're saved? How do you know you have real faith? A big part of that answer is by works, by deeds, by how you live your life. The heart of love. John makes it clear. 1 John 1, look at 6 and 7. 1 John 1, 6. If we say... Here's someone making a claim. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's a person, verse 6, who's making a claim. Here's another someone claiming something. This person claims to have fellowship with God. I know this God. I I believe in this God and his son. This person claims to be saved, yet he walks in the darkness, which is to say he's living in unrepentant sin, living in rebellion. He's going his own way, not God's way. So John says, well, he's a liar. How is he a liar? Well, he has lied in his claim to know this God. This person does not fellowship with God. Verse 5 just said, God is light. But this person is walking in the darkness. You're a liar. You don't really know 
the God who is light. And if you did, you wouldn't be perfect, but you'd be practicing the truth. You'd be walking in the light. You keep reading the verses. You'd be repenting when you sin and turning back when you sin. That's what you'd look like. This person's a liar. Also, look at chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 John. 1 John 2, 3. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Notice he doesn't say this is how we know him by keeping the commandments. That would be salvation by works. He says, this is how we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. and The truth is not in him. There's another person making a claim. This person claims, I've come to know Jesus. I know Jesus. He's my Savior. But then this person does not keep his commandments. It's not living Christ's way. Well, once again, this person is proven a liar. They lie in that claim. They don't really know him. They're not saved. They're lost. The truth does not abide in their heart. Because if, if it did, they would live it out. And so verse 5, he says, well, whoever keeps his word, Christ's word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is why I go to 1 John so much. It's so clear. He writes in the simplest Greek. It just, it's so simple and straightforward. How clear is that? He works here. They're an assurance issue, a validity issue. This is how we know that we're in Christ, by how we live. Deeds of obedience prove or disprove the reality of your claim of faith. And the same thing goes for love, your love and mercy to others. One more, turn to 1 John 3, one more page, 1 John 3. The whole book is, you don't get anything else in 1 John. I mean, this is what it's about, but that's, that's all we need. Look at verse 14, 1 John three fourteen. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, i.e. salvation, because we love the brethren. That's another way we know. Assurance, love, true love for the brethren. How do you know you've been made spiritually alive? Well, the fact that there's this new foreign love in your heart for these people you don't even know just because they're Christians. You have this wellspring of real love for others in the church. And that, that's one way you know. That's a sign of life. You, you might be alive. Or conversely, though, he says, verse 14, but he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so on the other side, the so-called Christian who lacks a love for others, for the church, instead is marked by hatred for others, that person does not have eternal life abiding in him, i.e. they're not saved. Look, we all wrestle with the flesh. People offend us. We can all fall into the sin of hatred, but the true believer can't live there. The true believer cannot really harbor hatred, resentment, and a lack of forgiveness toward others because they've been forgiven of so much that love will win in the end. And so if a person is like this with this abiding hatred toward others, they're just showing 
they've never been transformed by receiving the love of Christ. Indeed, verse 16, he says, we know love by this. Like, what even is this love? Well, here it is. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Starting to sound like James here, right? Another question. Here's another claim. What good is that? You've got a Christian who's well off. He sees a brother in need. He has the ability to meet that need, but he refuses to show mercy and help him. He closes his heart against the needy. So John asks his own question. How does the love of God dwell in such a person? And you get the same answer. It doesn't. That's the point. It, It doesn't. It's missing. It's not there. And that's because this person has never come to receive the saving and transforming love of God. If he had, it would have changed him. And so he finishes verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. It's an assurance issue. How's your love life? Is it just word and tongue only or deed and truth? This is a genuineness of salvation issue. Is your faith real or not? Do you have the saving kind of faith or the fake kind of faith? And one big test is your love for others. Do you love with word or tongue only? I'll pray for you. Be warm, be filled. Or do you love in deed and truth? And I I pray it's the latter. John writes so much about this because it's such a big issue. And that's why James has so much to say about it as well. And there are so many people who call themselves Christians, but they're sadly still lost and deceived. And maybe, just maybe, they'll they'll heed some of these wake-up calls in Scripture. That's why John writes. That's why James writes. Back to James. James 2.14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer is no. Jesus says no. James, John says no. James says no. And so back to James 2 now. He started this with the rhetorical question. He added a revealing illustration. Thirdly now, a rigid declaration. A rigid declaration, like verse 17. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What use is such faith without works? The answer is of no use. It's it's dead, it's being by itself. And again, just get it straight. James is not contrasting or contrasting Faith and works as two different modes of salvation. It's only one way of salvation. It's faith. He's contrasting two different types of faith. Real faith and fake faith. Saving and non-saving. Living faith versus dead faith. And living faith saves. Dead faith does not. How do you tell them apart? Well, living faith works. It's alive. It, It does things. It moves. It obeys. 
And a dead faith doesn't do anything. It's just, it's dead. It's not even real. And so nothing comes out of it. That's how you know. There's a, a recent tragic story in the news not too long ago about an orca whale off the coast of Washington. His mother gave birth to a calf who was born stillborn, but the mother orca decided to push the calf around for 17 days, covering a thousand miles, just pushing and carrying around her dead calf. And it's a stunning event in the animal world, never seen anything like it. Makes you kind of wonder, though, about the, the animal world. How do animals recognize death? How do they determine something has died? They, they can't take a pulse. They don't have a medical equipment like we do. So how do wild animals determine death? Well, the answer is, I think, really just by movement, by action. If that baby calf were alive, it would be swimming and moving and feeding. These actions would be signs of life. But a lack of all action, when something doesn't move at all, it's a sign of death. And spiritually, it's, it's not that different. How do you recognize spiritual life? Is there any spiritual life in that person? Well, is there movement? Is there action? Are there works? Are there deeds? If so, you've got signs of life. And that's just the nature of the new birth. When you come to Christ and you're born again, it gives you a new heart, new desires. And that's just going to show itself with new deeds. Yeah, you stumble, you fall, you sin, you repent. There's new repentance too. There's just newness. You're alive. It's pretty hard to hide the new birth. But like Jesus himself said, you will know them by their fruits. How do you tell if you've got a good living tree? We can't see the root structure. We can't see the insides. The only thing we can see are the fruits. And you can tell if you've got a healthy tree, if you've got this plentiful healthy fruit. And similarly, though, rotten fruit spells bad news for the tree. It's telling you that this tree is bad to its core. And then what happens next? Well, Matthew seven nineteen, Christ himself said that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. He said that. But it's true. And I'm sure you know what he says next. Familiar words to us, Matthew 7, 21, where he says right after, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's a claim, there's a profession of faith. Not everyone who says, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says, but he who does the will of the Father will enter. Only doers of the word enter the kingdom. Not because they are doers, but rather being doers, it proves they are believers. And the rest are cast out where Jesus declares to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Those with bad fruit, their lives are marked by disobedience and rebellion to Christ's will. They're not saved. And you can call Jesus Lord all you want with your mouth, but if your heart is not truly submitted to him by faith, evidenced by your actions, you're still lost and you're in your sins and you need salvation. Never ceases to amaze me though how some people teach otherwise. Some people actually teach that if you merely verbalize a confession of faith in Jesus, you just like say, I believe in Jesus, and you're saved. Done deal, end of discussion. 
you know, since salvation is by faith alone, some teach that a person merely needs to verbalize faith in Jesus and they're saved. That's all. This teaching is known as easy believism. It's really what it's called. And you see it manifested most in American evangelical churches with their crusades and rallies and revivals where there's all this pressure, make a decision for Christ. Sign this card, pray this prayer, and then you're saved. Those who do so, you're saved, no questions asked. Because after all, doesn't Romans 10, 9 say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved? Well, yeah. And so they just send these people off with an assurance of salvation, irrespective of how they live thereafter. What's the problem with this? Look, it's true. Salvation comes by your confession, a confession of faith in Christ, a confession of the gospel. But the problem is these people are not given an accurate picture of true confession. That's not what true confession is. What is a real saving confession of faith? Well, James is going to clarify now. We'll finish here, number four, a required clarification. A required clarification, verses 18, 19. Look at verse 18. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. We have another hypothetical conversation. James is dealing with those who believe faith and works can be separated. The only challenge in verse 18 is that in ancient writings, they did not actually use quotation marks. So we don't truly know where the quotation in verse 18 ends. It's not in the manuscripts. I found myself, though, agreeing with commentators who who see the best end quote after the first phrase. So James is saying, you have faith and I have works, end quote. And so what we have James doing is switching it up. He's referring to himself in this imaginary conversation. And he's saying to his opponent, you have faith, I have works, which means you claim to be saved by faith, which produces no works. I claim to be saved by faith, which produces works. And so like verse 14, he's dealing with someone who claims to have faith, but has no works. But now here in verse 18, the point he's making is that's really no faith at all. It's nothing. He says, show me your faith without the works. Where is it? Can you prove you really have this faith? How can you without works? There's zero evidence of your pretend faith. Your faith exists only in your mind, not in your heart, not in your hands. So where is it? Show me. It doesn't exist. And the point he's making is that mere intellectual assent is not a saving faith. It's not enough for saving faith. In reality, for people living outside the will of God, they're living in rebellion and not obedient, or rebellion rather, and not obedience. They can say whatever they want, but they can never show true faith because they don't have it. And that's the point he's making, where instead he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Salvation is always by faith, but the proof is in the pudding. Can you prove your saving faith by your works? That's the mark of a true disciple. Jesus himself said in John 15, 6, or 15, 8 rather, my father is glorified by this, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. And conversely, Titus 1.16, where Paul says of false believers, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And so you put together verse 18 is a needed clarification. Some people believe that faith, saving faith is, is equivalent to mere intellectual assent. Like easy believism today. You just, just mouth these words and you're saved. End of story. Done deal. Just make this confession. Pray the sinner's prayer. Get baptized at a high school camp. And you're done. But the problem is that can be saving faith for some, but if, if that's all it is, if a mere assent to the truth, that, that stops short of saving faith. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to the truth. It's not even assent to orthodoxy. And that's the point he makes in verse 19. Look there, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. These Jewish Christians would have still held on to the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith that God is one. That's true. That's orthodox. That's a good confession. But the point he's making is even such an orthodox confession of faith itself, if that's all you have, even that's not even saving faith. And as a case in point, he says, consider the demons. It is quite interesting when you think about it, but he says the demons believe the same thing. If you define true faith as mere intellectual assent, even to orthodox truth, well, by that definition, even demons have faith, right? Even demons have faith. That faith clearly does them no good. What James says is true, though. Demons know the truth. Demons could sign off on a a very orthodox doctrinal statement. They know there's only one true God. They know he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune. They know Jesus is the Son of God. He's fully God, came to earth as a man, lived, died on the cross, rose from the dead. They know all that stuff. So they're very orthodox in their knowledge of the truth. But that knowledge does them zero good. Their only response to this knowledge is to shudder, which speaks of fear and dread, like the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. And that's because their knowledge is not paired with a love for the Lord and a submission to his will. And so it only fills them with terror because they also know there is a coming judgment from which they have no escape. But listen, though, if, if this is all you have, if all you have is mere intellectual assent, even to the orthodox truth, well, your faith is as good as the demons. That's the point. And so talk about a worthless faith. Talk about a useless faith. And sadly, though, millions are just as deceived as the demons. It, it eases their conscience to say they believe in Jesus. They accept that news when someone told them, like, hey, you signed that card, you prayed that prayer, you got baptized at camp, you're good. You're a Christian now. And they feel like now I can just do whatever I want and live as I please, guilt-free, because I, I did that. So that's all I have to do, right? Meanwhile, there's no true love of God in their hearts, no desire for the things of the Lord, no obedience to Christ, no fruit of righteousness. 
And so theirs is a tragic level of self-deception. And such people in love need to be confronted with the truth that perhaps the veil might be lifted from their eyes. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. It's a good thing to do for all of us. And that's why James is writing as well. And so let this teaching from James cause you to examine yourself. Examine your life, your actions, your faith, claim. That, that's a good thing to do. We all struggle with sin and we all fall short. God's grace abounds as we repent and return to him. So we're not talking about perfection here, but we are talking about direction. What is the direction of your life after claiming to come to Jesus? Do you have a genuine love for God's people? Do you evidence that love by deeds of mercy? Do you desire to walk in God's ways? Do you have this overwhelming urge to follow Christ wherever he goes? And when push comes to shove, and you're up against your will versus God's will, do you submit to his will? Or are you just going to do your own thing? I got to tell you, you have to get straight what true saving faith really looks like. It is true. You are saved by your confession. But what is that? It's not mere intellectual assent. Rather, it's a complete submission of your will to God's will. A total surrender of self. It's a death where you die and then you recognize Jesus, he really is Lord and Savior. But you know what? Now he's not just Lord and Savior. He's your Lord and your Savior. Yeah, you must know the facts of the gospel. Yes, you must assent to them, of course. But this knowledge of Christ's death on the cross to pay for our sins and his resurrection, he must then be joined with a conviction where you, you, you see the truth and you come to the point where you realize, you realize, you know, I believe this. I think this is actually true. It's either true or not. Either is Lord or not. He either raised from the dead or not. And true saving faith, you come to the point where you, I believe he did. I believe he's true. And you know what? Now I'm going to follow him. I'm going to give my life to him. And to get to that point requires a total surrender. You've got to throw up the white flag. You are done living for sin and self. You have to dethrone self from your heart and enthrone Christ, so to speak. Because now you serve him. You live for him. Your old life is over. You died. Christ now lives in you. He died for you. He purchased you. He redeemed you with a price. So now your whole life is lived just to glorify him. He runs the show. Your life is not yours anymore. It's not up to you what you do with your life. It's not your life. He bought you and your life belongs to him. And so you now live according to his will. And you know what? You couldn't be happier. That's the picture of a saving faith, a saving confession. And I'll tell you what, there's no better place to be. There's no place of greater freedom than in bondage to Christ. When you live to serve him, he gives you the joy of the Lord. 
It gives you a heart that loves God and loves the law. So, you know, all the commands, they're, they're not even a burden anymore. They're a delight. You want to walk in his ways. And you find just a blessed life lived in reconciliation to your creator. That's what this is all about. So ask yourself, does your faith work? Does your faith work? Pun intended. Are you real? Are you alive? Do you have any signs of life? And if you don't, in one way I can say rejoice. Because today is still the day of salvation. It's not too late for your eyes to be opened. You can bow to Christ for real today. His mercies are new every morning. Go to him. Test your faith. Examine yourself. If you're found lacking, turn to Christ. And then you'll watch as you come alive. you watch as you grow. Watch as you bear fruit. Watch as you show signs of life. Watch as you have a new heart that loves others and forgives. Watch as your life is filled with the joy of the Lord. And watch as you're given a peace that surpasses all comprehension. This all comes to you by faith. But it's a faith that works. So make sure that your faith works. Let's pray. Our glorious God and Father in heaven, we, we give you praise this morning for your word that's so true and we need it. We need, we need the word to, to test us, to examine us. We thank you for the glory of the gospel that you've provided salvation for free at no cost by your grace where you sent your son Christ to die on the cross, rise from the dead, to pay the total debt of our sin and to offer us complete forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, It's the glory of salvation. And you offer it to us simply by faith, where we come to Jesus. We follow him. We die to self, pick up our cross, and follow him. That's all we must do. It costs us nothing. But at the same time, Lord, it it demands our whole life. But we wouldn't have it any other way. We thank you for this offer and for the gospel. And I pray as we examine ourselves and our faith and our lives, we're found true. We're not perfect. We are still great sinners. And we thank you for grace upon grace, which is greater than all our sins. May we just continue to purify our lives and our devotion to you, the one who saved us. And for any, though, who are found lacking, Lord, convict them. Show them joy. Show them the peace they're missing that's found when you come to the end of yourself and just bow to Christ. And he will fill them with new life and joy and peace and understanding May today be that day of of salvation for them, Lord. Show them the truth. For us now, may we just rejoice, though, for those who know Christ and grow, that we would have a faith that continues to work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.